there are men who know the Alpha and the Omega, but who don't know much at all about Alpha Flight or Omega the Unknown or Omega Flight or Alpha Girl or, or even Alpha Slash Omega, which is kind of a planet that the Silver Surfer found. Anyway, it was cool. And then there's Adam Bernstein and Doug Boss, two men who should have better things to do, but aren't doing them right now. These are two grown-ass men. Grown-ass men. With special guest grown-ass man, J.M. Dimiteus. In the search for the self And the Brooklyn-ass third eye In a world where all the comic books are king Captain America agrees with Man-Thing Above the Incredibly prolific J.M. Dimiteus. This guy has done it all. Pretty much any comic you love, he wrote it at one time or another, including Moonshadow and Brooklyn Dreams, Captain America, Justice League, and what is probably the greatest standalone Spider-Man story of all time, Craven's Last Hunt. Like animated shows, he wrote episodes of Ben 10, Teen Titans Go, Batman the Brave and the Bold. He's a musician, he's a novelist, he writes for TV and the movies. He was also born and raised in Brooklyn. That's a pretty great resume. Well, welcome to Grown Ass Men. Yeah, happy to do it. Where do you guys live? Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, Brooklyn. Oh, okay. I grew up in Brooklyn. The reason that I, uh, you know, obviously got, in I was always into your work, but I got interested in contacting you is because you did your posts on Twitter about Steve Gerber. And we want to talk to you about that. But of course, we want to talk to you about your work. It's funny that you bring up, you know, the Brooklyn thing. I really want to talk to you about Brooklyn Dreams. Oh, yeah. I'd but be happy to talk Maybe we should about talk that. to you about some uh, things that I, uh, before that, I saw your top 10, and that was interesting, on your blog. Yeah. And In my top 10 of my own projects, you mean? Yeah, of your oh, own okay. work. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure if I wrote it now, it might be it might be uh, manipulated a little bit, but it's still basically basically I'm sure how I feel. Yeah. But uh, it was really nice. I you know just to start with something uh, huge. I reread the uh, Spider-Man uh, 294, which is Craven, and also 400, uh -huh. which had, uh, you know where the the fake Aunt May dies. She wasn't fake. She was real when I wrote her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do tell. All right. Well, you know, that, that was just, they just, they, that was a retcon. You know, they, they, afterwards, they just, they changed it. But when there was no plan when that story was written to say that it was a fake Aunt May, that was, that was the death of Aunt May, period. You know? Wow. So who, uh, who uh, undid your decision? I have, no, that was like after I left those books and someone else, probably whoever was editor in chief at the time decided to undo that. And then they did the, 
you know, people are undoing this stuff all the time. That's the nature of the beast when you're working in these shared universes. And I have to say, with all due respect to anyone involved, I'm sure they were talented people and they were probably following orders from somebody above their head. It was really a dumb explanation. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> An actress pretending to be Aunt May who fooled Peter Parker and everybody else around them into thinking it really was Aunt May. That was like, yeah, that was like, that was one of the dumber ones. But, you know, I'm sure I've done the same kind of weird stuff to other people. What did he do to my story? I can't believe what he did. You know, what did he do to my character? Why did he do that? Right. So that's the nature of the beast. And, and, and I always say the stories are still out there. So you want to read about the death of Aunt May? Pick up the book, read it. It's out there. And as far as I'm concerned, that was the death of Aunt May. I'll stick with that, too. She's dead. You know, when you write, when you write the death of a character, you have to believe it. Even though it's comics, even that you know that maybe in a year, two years, five years, that character will come back. You have to be emotionally invested in it, and you have to completely believe it. Just this week, I, I was reading some of your Captain America run. Right. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was how human it was. You know you're really dealing with the issues that were happening at the time in the, in the early eighties. It's, it's all about race and income inequality and Captain America has a Jewish girlfriend and a gay best friend. And right. you're dealing with really interesting things that were on everybody's mind. And I was wondering, I think Jim Shooter was head of Marvel at the time. Jim was, was editor in chief at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Was it difficult at all to balance topical issues with action? You know, Captain America, especially when it was coming out at the time that run, I don't remember there being any kind of buzz or anything about it. The book was selling okay and people were reading it, but it wasn't like... And over the years, for some reason, over the years, maybe it's because the people that were 12 when they were reading it then are adults now, I don't know. But more and more, I've seen tremendous appreciation for that run, which I appreciate. But in terms of your question, um, it's just what you do when you write Captain America. It's there, how else do you write? You know, to me, you know, he he is the embodiment of the American dream. So what you've got is the is the gap between the American dream and the American reality. So on the bigger, broader philosophical plane, that's where all the Captain America stories are. You know, so you have to write about that stuff, or else what? You know, when you have a guy whose name is Captain America and he's got a flag on his suit. If you're just having him fight villains and you're not dealing with that kind of stuff, then, you know, it could be any character in the world. And in terms of what you're saying, um, that's one of the things that struck me. That's one of the reasons I brought in Arnie Roth, who was Cap's, you know, childhood best friend uh, who turns out to be gay. I always, you know, and, and I've had a lot of people come to me over the years about that story and how much it meant to them and how much it still means to them that the character exists. I wasn't trying to make any grand statement. You know, I was just, this is Captain America. Look at this, just what you said. His girlfriend's Jewish. Sam Wilson, his other best friend, he's a black guy, you know. It, he, he, he is the embodiment of the big tent, you know. He, so, of course, he would have another friend who's gay. He would have, have to be surrounded by people that represent all of America, not just one little slice of America. And what's so cool about him is that he evolves a lot and he missed a big chunk of his life, you know. Because he gets apparently frozen in ice. Right, right. So right, he's from right. a different era completely. But he, he like, uh, is still more open-minded in some writers' uh, yes. viewpoints yes. than a lot of the other characters, which I always find refreshing about Captain America. Yeah, 
you know, it's a funny thing. He was like, you know, frozen in ice for however many years, depending on where in Marvel continuity you are. Right. And he's always written like he's this older, wiser soul, you know, who's been around. But the truth is, how old was he when he was frozen? 21? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So he's really not that old, you know? So the, the, the kind of uh, shtick where he's like this old, wise soul is kind of funny when you think about it, but you kind of, you have to kind of ignore that when you write the character because that's who Steve is. He really is. He's, he likes to uh, pontificate in the best ways. <laughs> and I love writing speeches. So that, that was, I love that about the character. You know, I love, you know, that's why I love, you know, Rod Serling and his character speechifying and Ray Bradbury. So any chance to write a speech, I like legal dramas so that they so can stand up in the courtroom and talk the way that lawyers would never, ever talk in real life, you know? Um, right. So Captain America gives you an opportunity to do that. I read 300, which is where he uh, uh, battles the Red Skull pretty intensely, and I enjoyed that. Well, that was the problematic issue. You asked were there issues along the way, and for the most part, there weren't. Uh, the only issues I ran into, there were two issues. One, there was uh, one story, because this was the early 80s, so if you read the Arnie Roth stuff, it's very clear that he's gay, but no one ever uses the word gay. Mm -hmm. You know, he talks about his roommate who he loves and, you know, Steve gives a great speech about um, that, that, you know, um, his love for his roommate is just as sacred as Steve's love for Bernie. So it's all really clear, but you never say gay, you know, and there was one scene in 398 or 399 where the skull has kidnapped Arnie and they created like this, this cabaret kind of thing, like a German cabaret from before World War II. They've got Arnie all dressed up like Joel Grey in Cabaret, and he, he's forced to make this speech about what a worthless, uh, despicable human being he is, essentially, because he's gay. This is from the point of view of the Red Skull, of course, you know? And I remember that Shooter came in and wanted that language toned down because it was too clearly evident that Arnie was gay, and they didn't want to hit it on the head. But then you turn the page, and I think that's where Steve gives a speech about Arnie and his roommate, and Steve and Bernie, and it's completely a thousand percent clear you know but the other issue that i had was I, that, that whole death of the red skull storyline had been going on i've been developing that for a year and stop me if you've heard the story before um and what was going to happen in issue 300 which i wrote as a double-sized issue was that steve's realization you know the, the skull dies steve's been aged he almost dies all his closest friends are almost killed by the skull and he silently wakes up and goes you know I've been doing this for all these years, starting in World War II, you know, basically trying to solve problems by punching the bad guy in the face and dropping a building on his head. And where does it get me? It gets me nowhere. Everyone I, lo I love almost died. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and I almost died. So he begins to question his road of violence. And I had a whole year-long thing planned where Steve was going to become a global peace activist, turn his back on oh, violence. Wow. The whole, the, all the heroes in the Marvel Universe and the government were going to turn against him. He was going to get assassinated at the end of it. And and uh, and then the plan after that was, I was going back and forth. It was either going to be Sam Wilson or this other Native American character I had, Black Crow, who was going to become Captain America. And I think I finally landed on Black Crow. So it was going to be this amazing story that would, especially in the early 80s, would have been unlike anything anyone had ever seen. And Shooter basically said that did not align with his vision of Captain America. You know, the line that I remember was, my Captain America wouldn't do that. So they killed the story. They cut that issue in half. They did some rewriting on it. That's why if you look at the credits, uh, I get credit for plot and then I gave a fake name 
for the script, you know, and when I weigh my, my experiences with Jim, the good far outweighs the bad, you know, at the end, it, you know, it wasn't a lot of fun. And I, and I went back to, to DC after that, not long after that. But when I look at all the good uh, in my experiences with Jim, it actually, it outweighs the bad, you know, so, you'd, so I, I can't, I can't, you know, paint with a broader brush than my own experience. So I it's uh, interesting. I read something. It was probably on your blog that you said about how, you know, uh, it was, it was good to write for, Spider-Man and Captain America, but you kind of, you never would have found your own voice if you kept writing those. If I hadn't stepped out of that. Yeah. Yeah. With, yeah. with my creator own stuff, with stuff like Moonshadow. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like you were more partnered with an editor than with somebody like Mike Zek? Or did you feel like you had real creative partnerships like with, with other. With right. Other oh players. yeah, no, absolutely. Cause you know, comics are words and pictures and that's the fundamental and most important chemistry. Uh, is is the chemistry between writer and artist. And that's another interesting level of the game because sometimes you don't even have to know that person well for that chemistry to exist. It exists on the page. Because in a lot of, when you're doing monthly comics, certainly it's it's a treadmill, you know? We need the next plot, the next script, it's got to go to the artist, it's got to go to the anchor, it's got to go to the letter. So you're, you're moving on this treadmill. But what happens is, and I've said this many times, chemistry between writers and artists is the same as chemistry between people. You know, you walk into a party, you run into somebody there, you start to talk to them and your words are like flying over each other's heads. You're just not connecting with each other. You turn around, you bump into somebody else from the first second you start talking to them, there's instant chemistry. And it's the same thing with writers and artists. I've seen projects where I've, I've written a good script. The artist has done a really nice job on the art and you put it together and it just dies. Huh. You know, and other things, you know, I, I always use, you know, Sal Buscema is a wonderful, wonderful example. Started working together on Spectacular Spider-Man. And I always say from the first page, first panel, some magical thing clicked, you know? And yes, over the course of working together for two years, we'd get on the phone and we'd talk and we got to know each other and like each other. But the chemistry is there in the work. Uh, John J. Muth, who did Moonshadow, you know, we, we live in the same area. So we would get together face to face, you know? We would go, go out to breakfast and I'd bring in the script and he'd do little layouts on napkins in the diner. You know what I mean? That kind of collaboration is great. I, right after Moonshadow, I did something called Blood of Tail with Kent Williams and Kent literally lived next door to me. So we would be running back and forth to each other's apartment. Hey, what do you think about this? And he'd bring me some artwork. What do you think about it? You know, and that, that you know, you, you hope for that. Is there another specific example? Like, I like what you were saying about working with Sal Buscema. Like, is there another specific example of like something that you worked on that came to life in a different way when you got it back from a... Yeah, I think it's always, you know, especially think of projects that I, I had in my head for years. And I'll think of two of them. We're talking about Captain America. Um, and so that, that plot line was, was blown up. And not long after that, I started developing my own original characters, a, a way to tell that story. And I would write it up and I'd try to get people to buy it and they, would, they didn't get it. They'd turn me down. This went on from 1983 until... 2008. I kept every few years, I'd dust that story off. I'd rewrite it. I'd send it out. People would reject it. And then around 2008, I was talking to my friend, Mike Cavallaro, a wonderful artist and uh, also a good buddy. And I said, and he had sent me some new artwork he was working on. The, I looked at this artwork that Mike was working on. He'd been in this sort of Kirby frame of mind. I said, Oh, let me send you this thing, Savior 28. It's called The Life and Times of Savior 28. That's what it evolved into. He said, I'd love to do it. Sent it off to Chris Ryle at IDW. It's the only time I think it's ever happened to me. I sent it in in the morning and we got approved that day wow. for a five-issue miniseries. So it only took 
25 years <laughs> to get approved on the same day, you know, but Mike and I, you know, we have a real friendship. We have a personal chemistry. We, and, and, you know, how I, I had considered lots of artists over the years, but I always feel like it's, I always feel like there's, you know, the, the artistic chess pieces in the, of the universe as the universe is, is getting all the right pieces in the right place, you know, and Mike was the guy that was supposed to draw that book. No one else was supposed to draw that book but him. And another example, one of my favorite collaborations of all time is Mike Plug. We did a thing for CrossGen, and then we did it as a series of children's books uh, called Abadazad. And I'd had that idea in my head for 10 years. And then Mike Plug, who was an artist that when I was just a fan reading comics, I just admired the hell out of, uh, to work with him on that, CrossGen brought him in. And again, in, even before we started working together, the first time we got on the phone, there was just instant chemistry. We just understood each other, what we loved about story, how, how we loved to tell a story. And I could never, you know, I could, like that story for those 10 years was waiting for Mike Plute to show up. It was as simple as that. Well, you know, that's really great stuff to hear and not that surprising. And like leading into talking about the Brooklyn Dreams book, which I read yesterday. I did not know. That. Oh, you had never read it before. I was born in 64 in the sort of around Bensonhurst area. My grandparents and parents are from Brooklyn, uh -huh. Bensonhurst. Right. So there was a lot in that story that is easily, easily relatable for me being around Brooklyn. And I was in high school and doing a lot of drugs and Music is my entire life. I'm a musician mm -hmm. now. A lot of things stuck out to me. Obviously, hearing you talk about it, your relationship with the artists and editors, that the connection just in general is really important to you. Especially on well, Brooklyn Dreams, you know, one of the, the best compliments I ever got was a, a, a writer that I know said to me, he said, you know, I always thought that the best comics had to be done by one person who is a writer and artist. It has to have that seamless vision of one person. He said, and then I read Brooklyn Dreams and I saw how the two of you guys came together and created this thing. And, and it was the first time I thought that, that a writer and an artist together could, could do what a single person could do. And, and it, was, it was the same kind of thing with Glenn Barr. It was like a mind meld. And again, Glenn and I were not on the phone a lot. We weren't hanging out a lot. I think we've met in all these years face-to-face -face one time. Wow. Uh, I spoke to him recently because we're looking for a new publisher for Brooklyn Dreams right now. Um, uh, but something happened. I had in my head, I knew what I wanted that story to look like. It was a little bit kind of Eisner-esque, but some other things going on. You know, the, 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 the different array of styles, the younger he is, the more distorted the style, that kind of thing. And yeah. the more realistic the present day is. And uh, the editor at the time was a guy named Mark Nevelo. There was a, it started with a DC imprint called Piranha Press, <clears throat> which evolved into Paradox Press, which then got absorbed into Vertigo. But originally it was Paradox Press and Mark Nevelo showed me these pages from Glenn Barr. And, you know, you wish for this to happen. And I said, you know, that's exactly what I've been seeing in my head. Mm. You know, and Glenn, time and again, he either did exactly what I imagined or he did it better. You know, His and work is phenomenal. Oh, phenomenal. And he was the perfect person to do this kind of book because um, he's not a superhero mainstream comic book artist at all. He's, yeah. he's, he's off doing his own very unique, amazing thing. And it just clicked and it just worked, you know? Uh, it was uh, a very magical collaboration and he's just brilliant. I loved how, I mean, <laughs> a lot of things resonated with me. It's funny, you mentioned Mirababa, Gurdjieff, uh, Ramdas, um, WBAI, 
Guskievsky. Yeah, I mean, what I one thing I got hooked on, which was is probably the tiniest detail, but I was so hooked on it was that you go, oh, I'm going to see the Kinks at the Fillmore, and I'm guessing it's 1970, something like that. Yeah, yeah, and I'm like, all right, so the Kinks did not play in the states from like 65 to 69, right? And I'm like, all right, is he seeing the Lola tour? You know, what is he seeing? No, it was before like, Lola. <laughs> uh, is it the I, Arthur what, tour? But here's what happened. What, what, what I, my memory is, I went to see the Kinks twice. And then each time I never got to see them. The first time someone in the band got sick. So Ray Davies basically came out on stage at the Fillmore and said, we, we can't perform tonight, you know? Um, and then the second time, it's a long story, I accidentally blew myself up in an oven <laughs> and uh, didn't Excellent. go see them that night. <laughs> that sounds like something that... Like Sylvia Plath or what? No, not that. No, no, I wasn't trying to kill myself or anything. No, I was just, I came home from uh, from community college, threw something in the oven, closed the door and didn't realize that the light had gone out. Oh. And I didn't realize how long it had gone out. So I went to relight it when I realized, I went, <laughs> you know, and up went my hair. And my, but luckily, you know, it wasn't terrible. Although my kitchen did catch on fire too. And I had to put that out. So, Whoa. you know, All right, so, so you that, didn't that, see the kinks. You just, so, so you, you I just almost bit. saw the kinks. Almost I had tickets to see the kinks and I never right. got to see them. Right. I, I hold Ray <laughs> Davies personally responsible for that. <laughs> what are you working on now? Like, what are you, what's your, what do you um, very very busy very busy now juggling as I always am a bunch of different stuff. Um, working on a project uh, for DC called Justice League Infinity. Um, I wrote I wrote for the Justice League Unlimited the TV series, and this is essentially the next season of Justice League Unlimited in comic book form. And we're having a great time. I'm working with James Tucker, who was one of the producers on the show. We're writing it together. A wonderful artist named Ethan Beavers is drawing it, um, and uh, just having a great time with that. Uh, for Marvel, I'm working on, uh, it's called Ben Riley Spider-Man. It's the Ben Riley character, you know, the, 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 who's actually, I guess in the main book is now Spider-Man there too. But this takes place in that nineties clone saga era when Peter and Mary Jane have left town and Ben is stepping forward to be Spider-Man again for the first time after being in exile for five years. And I'm having a great time with that. Um, I do a lot of animation work and I'm working with a, com a company. I signed an NDA, so I can't get into details. A company in another country that's developing a series of uh, animated feature films that I'm working with them on those. Um, I'm writing a novella for a, a wonderful, there's a new site called... Um, Which novella is more like person? Neotext. It's called Neotext. Neotext.com, I'm pretty sure is, is the address of it. And they have a lot of new fiction and nonfiction, really interesting articles. And so I'm, I'm writing a novella for them uh, and having fun. I haven't written prose in, you know, a lot of my comic book work is very prose heavy, but I haven't written prose since a, a, a kid's fantasy I wrote about 10 years ago called Imaginal. So it's really fun to be back deep into prose again. And I'm also developing a group of creator-owned comics, you know, original stuff too. So between all those things, between the animation and the prose and the comics and the originals, I'm busy. That was the first part of our conversation with J.M. Dimiteus. In our next episode, we get into his love for Steve Gerber, and he's not the only one who loves Gerber. We're going to talk with, wait for it, it's true, no kidding, Jerry Conway. See you soon. <laughs>